the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blind is producing Clark Hilton Engineering. Dan Rice, he's given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Today on the program, we'll hear a classic interview with A.J. Svoboda. He's the author of Redeeming How We Talk. It's a timely interview for just the time we're in. We're also going to take a look at the culture wars that we are currently in and the Marxist roots of much of what we're seeing and hearing. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Taking a look at uh, some of the day's news, um, now they're apparently coming after Jesus, but it won't be the first time. Sean King says, yes, I think the statues of the white European they claim is Jesus should also come down. They are a form of white supremacy, always have been, tear them down. So apparently no one is exempt, reputation notwithstanding. Well, rioters gathered on Monday in Lafayette Square before the White House, where they clashed with police as they attempted to tear down a monument to former U.S. President Andrew Jackson and set up a Black House autonomous zone. The Daily Caller reports that as the rioters were forced to move further away from the statue, they began to get more angry and indignant and began to fight the police. Reporters on the ground said the rioters then proceeded to vandalize St. John's Church, Rioters spray-painted BHAZ on the historic church, which stands for Black House Autonomous Zone. They were never able to actually establish one, however. Meanwhile, Q13 Fox reveals that faced with growing pressure to crack down on an occupied protest zone followed, following two weekend shootings, Seattle's mayor said Monday that officials will move to wind down the block-long, rather blocks-long span of city streets taken over two weeks ago. The President Trump asserted is run by anarchists. That was on Monday. Today is Wednesday. Mayor Jenny Durkin said the violence was distracting from changes sought by thousands of peaceful protesters opposing racial inequity and police brutality. It is evidently completely lost on Mayor Durkin that this violence is because of the absurd police changes sought not just by these um, individuals, but by protesters at large. In other news, uh, the Biden campaign has uh, committed to three debates in this run-up to the presidential election. And, oh, yeah, there's still a presidential election coming up in November. The president has signed an executive order suspending certain work visas through 2020. And congressional Democrats signed a letter demanding education, the department, allow males in girls' sports. An ex-CNN reporter says that reporters now work for the Chinese Communist Party's propaganda outfit, CGTN. Apparently that reporter is doing just that. The New York Times uh, has tapped uh, intercept alum and bona fides, uh, bona fide leftists to manage their editorial page. We'll tell you more about that later. And the Federal Communications Commission has shut down radio stations run by Chinese propaganda outlet and Phoenix TV. The Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has branded four Chinese state media outlets foreign missions and an army soldier accused of planning an attack on his own unit by giving classified information to neo-Nazis, has been exposed. 
Texas Governor Greg Abbott says tougher anti-COVID restrictions might come back in that state as the numbers increase and coronavirus cases are increasing, but deaths aren't across the country. More evidence that um, lack of vitamin D is linked to COVID-19 severity, something to think about. And the FDA is warning nine hand sanitizers may contain a potentially fatal ingredient. You can go to USA Today to find out which hand sanitizers they're referring to. A Dutch doctor has been exonerated after euthanizing an unwilling patient. I suppose that's not altogether surprising in the Netherlands. Well, taxpayers uh, still on the hook for stadium debts, even though coronavirus canceled sports. But then those stadiums weren't likely to bring the growth the cities wanted in the first place all across the country. Well, due to Seattle's unrest, a billion-dollar investment firm is moving to Phoenix. Seattle does not seem like a safe place to be. North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper has vetoed a bill to reopen bars and gyms out of an abundance of caution. And audio has emerged of Jimmy Kimball, the comedian and late-night talk show host, a social justice fraudster and misogynist, using the N-word and other things as well. Friendly Fire, well, Black Lives Matter forces LGBTQ organization to face its history of racial exclusion infighting apparently colorado is passing a landmark law against qualified immunity and new jersey ranked uh, least patriotic state in the nation i wonder where oregon and or washington reside on that list andy no says my terrifying five-day stay inside seattle's cop free chaz was harrowing you can read all about it in the new york post and cpac leaders are warning that statues of jesus are next leftists as i mentioned a moment ago immediately confirm his concerns. Well, Black Lives Matter founder is an expert at George Soros Institute for New Economic Thinking who called for opposing capitalism. A colleague admits we are trained Marxists. We'll talk more about that in the second hour of today's program. And South Korea says John Bolton's memoir on Trump and Kim Il-jung um, and the summit is distorted. This is according to South Korea. Uh, Major League Baseball is proceeding with 60 games in the 2020 season. We'll see how that works out. Well, at least three men brandishing long guns seen Tuesday night near the Wendy's restaurants in Atlanta, where Rashad Brooks was fatally shot during his arrest in uh, June 12th, told Fox News that police were no longer allowed in that area. One man, who said he was holding a 12-gauge shotgun, told reporter Steve Harrigan he was armed because there were no longer police officers to protect them. Another man said that he lost confidence that the city's police were committed to their pledge to serve and protect. The police aren't allowed here because they're not here to protect us, the man with the shotgun said. Well, Harrigan told Fox News that he observed a roadblock with no police in sight. Early Wednesday, the Atlanta Police Department told Fox News in a statement, APB, APD rather, is monitoring the situation and plans to coordinate with community leaders and the Wendy's property owner to address security issues and help preserve peace for this community as soon as possible. Previously, the most recent uh, tweet from the department was posted a few days ago, assuring residents that officers were still capable of responding to 911 calls. That tweet followed reports that some Atlanta police officers had been calling out sick and what the city's interim police chief said was an indication that they may feel abandoned by the city's leadership. Meanwhile, L.A. Sheriff says that uh, defund police advocates have selective amnesia about officers saving lives. And the Georgia House has passed a bill to dissolve a county police department. Atlanta Wendy's arson suspect has been ID'd as Rayshard Brooks' girlfriend. She has been arrested. 
Longtime New York representative Engel has fallen behind uh, AOC in the back to challenger in the uh, primary race. Longtime New York representative Elliot Engel, who was first elected to Congress in 1988 and rose to become one of the most powerful House Democrats, was substantially trailing middle school principal Jamal Bowman on Tuesday's primary, possibly setting the stage for the second major upset of a veteran New York City Democratic congressman in just two years. However, the primary in New York's 16th congressional district was too early to call early Wednesday morning. A Bowman, who was endorsed by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, has roughly 61% of the counted vote overnight. Engel was in second with about 36% of the counted vote. New York counties did uh, release any mail ballots, rather didn't release any mail ballots, on Tuesday, which could account for more than half of the vote. Counties uh, have until July, uh, the 1st of July, to start releasing the results of mail ballots. Engel serves as the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He had secured a slew of powerful endorsers, including Hillary Clinton, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, uh, Senator Ma- Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Also endorsing Engel were the Congressional Black Caucus, Majority Whip James Clyburn of South Carolina, House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff, of California, and fellow New York Representative Hakeem Jeffries and U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren. Apparently didn't matter. Well, in all his years in auto racing, NASCAR driver Bubba Wallace said Tuesday night that he has never seen anything like what he described as a straight-up noose that was being used as a door pull in the garage he was assigned to last week at the Talladega Speedway. The FBI has since said, well, The rope had been hanging in the garage since last year, and it wasn't intended as a hate crime against Wallace, a 26-year native of Alabama who is the only African-American full-time driver in the NASCAR circuit. Still, Wallace says um, it looks an awful lot like a noose to him, and he stands by his earlier accusations. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll continue to look at some of the day's headlines, and then uh, we'll talk with uh, uh, hear from A.J. Svoboda, author of Redeeming How We Talk, a book published by Moody. And in the second hour, we're going to take a look at the Marxist roots of much of the disruption we're seeing today. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, anticipating a conversation with A.J. Swoboda, redeeming how we talk. That's coming up in the next two segments of today's program. Well, Charles Chaput, a Catholic, and Michael Ferris, an evangelical and the CEO of Alliance Defending Freedom, pointed the hypocrisy bothering so many today saying in first things, so what of those officials who are happy ignoring or in some cases joining protesters who fill the streets in violation of social distancing mandates while restricting corporate worship, adding insult to injury, some of those officials have also been reluctant to prosecute vandals who have defaced church buildings. It seems government is more than willing to abuse its power in shuttering churches, but equally willing to give up that power when those churches are defaced. Hmm. The Trump administration won a court ruling on Tuesday upholding its plan to require insurers and hospitals to disclose the actual price for common tests and procedures in a bid to promote competition and push down costs, according to the Associated Press. Health and Human Service Secretary Alex Azar called the decision in federal court on in Washington a resounding victory for President Donald Trump's effort to open up the convoluted world of health care pricing so patients and families can make better informed decisions about their care. However, the American Hospital Association is signaling an appeal, which means the decision by U.S. District Judge Carl Nichols may not be the final word. And the Asheville Citizen Times is reporting, 
Uh, political newcomer Madison Cawthorn breezed past President Donald Trump's pick of Mark Meadows' seat in Congress in a two-person GOP runoff election on Tuesday. The 24-year-old Henderson County Republican roundly defeated Hayward County's Linda Bennett in the primary runoff for North Carolina's 11th congressional district. This somewhat unexpected result was accompanied by a more foreseeable outcome in New York, where, as I mentioned, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez fended off a challenge by former CNBC contributor Michelle uh, Caruso-Cabrera to win the Democratic primary in New York's 14th district, as reported. Appeals court ordered uh, Michael Flynn's case to be dismissed, ending years of legal saga. And Nancy Pelosi compares black Senator Tim Scott's police reform bill to the murder of George Floyd actually saying, point blank, that Republicans are responsible for his murder. Facebook content moderators, if someone's wearing a MAGA hat, I'm going to delete them for terrorism. This is a content moderator. And Twitter is hiding the president's tweet for threatening, a.k.a. warning, potential protesters that if they continue, there will be consequences. Meanwhile, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo again blames the president for New York's nursing home deaths. More border wall has been put up during the coronavirus pandemic, 77 miles, than at any point in the president's presidency. And local Arizona leaders are telling visiting Trump he's, uh, his wall is working. Jared Kushner, his uh, uh, ally, is joining the Pentagon to move critical industries out of China. Anthony Fauci, you know, Dr. Fauci says it will be when, not if, for a vaccine. And coronavirus is spreading across the entire state of Texas. Governor Greg Abbott urges residents to stay home. Washington state is making face masks mandatory all across the state. And school children don't spread coronavirus. That's according to a French study. You can read about it in Bloomberg, but I wouldn't uh, rush to judgment on that one. Meanwhile, in Lincoln County, they have suspended the rules of uh, science and the laws of science. In Lincoln County, Oregon, they say minorities don't need to wear coronavirus face masks if they have concerns about racial profiling and harassment. Let me tell you. Racial profiling and harassment doesn't begin and end with a face mask. It's not going to make that much difference if it's occurring. But apparently Lincoln County either believes black lives don't matter because if you wear a face mask, you're less likely to contract the coronavirus or somehow they suspend the laws of science and uh, black people aren't going to get it if they don't wear face masks in Lincoln County, which they're advising all of their residents to do in their own best interest. Forgive me if I'm just a little bit confused by it all. I thought science was supposed to be a fixed thing that applied to everyone equally. Well, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals ordered a federal court to end the case against former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn on Wednesday. After the Justice Department dropped its case against Flynn, the presiding judge appointed a third party to present arguments in opposition to the Department of Justice decision. The Wednesday ruling by the Circuit Court vacates the Flynn judge's order. The district court is directed to grant the government's motion to dismiss and the district court's order appointing an amicus is hereby vacated as moot, read the opinion by the circuit court. He's exonerated, not just um, uh, the case is not just ended. Meanwhile, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin has opened the door this week to a second extension of the 2019 annual tax filing deadline as Americans and the nation's economy continue to reel from the coronavirus pandemic. It's something I'm thinking about, he said Tuesday during an interview with Bloomberg News. As of now, I'm not intending to do uh, on doing that, but it's something we may consider. Several groups have called on the IRS to further delay the tax deadline. That includes the National Taxpayers Union, which has advocated for an extension 
until the 15th of October. It's become clear that the U.S. economy won't have bounced back by uh, by July as much as originally hoped, said uh, the Alexandria, Virginia-based organization wrote at the end of April. Businesses will only start to reopen by July, and many individuals will still be working remotely if they're lucky enough to be working at all. Well, hundreds of troops with the Washington, D.C. National Guard have mobilized to protect monuments in the nation's capital. A Pentagon spokesperson has confirmed. Interior Secretary David Bernard, he requested the action earlier this week as protesters target statues and other historical markers during an ongoing demonstration, or demonstrations plural, in the wake of George Floyd's police custody death in Minneapolis at the end of May, which has almost been lost in much of what's uh, gone on since. The Pentagon confirmed that roughly 400 D.C. Guard members have been activated and are standing by. Since their activation, none of the National Guard members have been dispatched to actual monument locations to provide assistance uh, to the NPP. Pentagon spokesman Lieutenant uh, Colonel Christian Mitchell said in a statement, they remain on standby at the D.C. Armory at this time. They will support U.S. Park Police at key moments and monuments to prevent any defacing or destruction. And the Republican-authored police reform bill failed in the Senate, a Senate test vote on Wednesday, after Democrats opposed the bill on the basis it did not go far enough, sparking a furious war of words on the floor and marking an apparent impasse just weeks after George Floyd's death led to calls for new legislation. The procedural vote on whether to start debate was 55 to 45. It needed 60 votes in order to proceed. Republicans had 53, but not enough Democrats joined them. This effectively freezes police reform in Congress for now, even if the House approves its own measure on Thursday. The Senate was supposed to officially take up police reform on the floor today. Instead, our Democratic colleagues are poised to turn this routine step into a partisan impasse. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell fumed, saying the bill was a first offer and could have been altered during the debate process. Lawmakers in the House and Senate have proposed bills amid the movement to reform policing in the wake of Floyd's death last month in Minneapolis. The GOP legislation was spearheaded by Senator Tim Scott, the only African-American senator on the Republican side. It would beef up requirements for law enforcement to compile use of uh, force reports. It would also establish a Breonna Taylor Notification Act to track no-knock warrants. To focus on ending chokeholds, it encourages agencies to do away with the practice or risk losing federal funds. And again, in Lincoln County, people of color who have heightened concerns about racial profiling and harassment due to wearing face coverings in public, the policy reads under uh, a list of exceptions. The county's website includes that comment under exceptions that fall under the header face covering directives. All individuals in Lincoln County are required to wear face coverings during any indoor public setting or outdoor public location where a person will be within six feet of another individual who does not share the same household in otherwise states. Uh, but then it outlines the exceptions, including one based on a person's race. A previous uh, article by CNN highlighted concerns some people of color have around mask wearing. The network quoted Trayvon Logan, an economics professor at Ohio State University, who said, we have a lot of examples of presumed criminality of black men in general, and then we have the advice to go out in public in something that can certainly be read as being criminal or nefarious, particularly when applied to black men. So Lincoln County, who probably, what do they have, five black people, decided that um, they are welcome to expose themselves to the coronavirus uh, and somehow, uh, apparently, officials there are suspending the laws of, um, of science uh, in order to preserve the concerns. 
of individuals who may and, and, and keep in mind that the African-American and Latino communities are more susceptible when they do contract the virus. Apparently that doesn't matter either or Lincoln County has some new device uh, that makes that that renders them exempt from uh, catching the virus. I'm very interested to find out which is the case. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with A.J. Svoboda, Redeeming How We Talk, published by Moody. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're all familiar with the psalm that pleads, May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Redeeming How We Talk breaks down how to do just that. We're talking about the new book uh, written by my guest and his co-author titled Redeeming How We Talk, Discover How Communication Fuels Our Growth, Shapes Our Relationships, and Changes Our Lives. We need to talk more. We need to talk better. Uh, Redeeming How We Talk uh, explores what the Bible has to say about that central aspect of life in relationships, conversation. Uh, There's um, not a whole lot of that kind of quality going on in our culture right about now, so we would do well to set an example. The scriptures show us that words have remarkable power to create, to bless, to encourage, to forgive, and of course there's the other side as well. Imagine how we as Christians could spark change in our families, our churches, and even in our communities if we learn to use words like Jesus did, weaving together theology, history, and philosophy. My guest, uh, A.J. Svoboda, and his co-author, Ken um, Weistma, Uh, They help us reclaim the holiness of human speech and the relevance of meaningful conversation in our culture today. Well, A.J. Svoboda is a professor, author, and pastor of Theophilus in urban Portland. He is the lead mentor of a Doctor of Ministry program on the Holy Spirit and the leadership at Fuller Seminary and teaches theology, biblical studies, and Christian history at a number of other universities and Bible colleges. He's the director of Blessed Earth Northwest, an organization focusing on creation care issues and Sabbath in the Pacific Northwest. He also serves as the executive director of the Seminary Stewardship Alliance. He and his wife, uh, Quinn, they live with their son, Elliot, right here in our community. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real honor to have you. Georgine, it's always a joy uh, joy to hear from you. Well, there there uh, is a lot of talk these days, but not much emphasis on the art of conversation and the value of how we use our words. This book is perhaps more timely than you imagined, as we find ourselves in something of a cultural uh, crisis in terms of how we uh, communicate and relate to one another. Had you anticipated that? Well, yeah, I mean, we, we knew, Ken, Ken Weitzman and myself, when we wrote this book, we knew that something needed to be addressed. In fact, I, a, a real kind of turning point for me was uh, after um, the, the, the election when Donald Trump uh, became our president. And what, what we observed and what I particularly observed in the church that I pastor here in Portland was um, immediately after that election, a complete breakdown in communication uh, between people, both of different political persuasions, but simultaneously between different generations. And we noticed that uh, kids were no longer talking to their parents and Democrats were no longer talking to Republicans. And all of a sudden, we just start resorting to talking about the weather. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, that's a real problem. If we can't be people that know how to talk to people on the other side, boy, we're we're in a bit of a crisis. Uh, we're talking about um, our culture today, and it perhaps predates the the election, but it certainly has come to a uh, to a head in these last uh, twelve fifteen months. Uh, but you write about uh, the culture 
um, and the transformative and redemptive conversation um, that we are supposed to be engaged in and has fallen victim to what has become popularized in the highly charged political climate. Talk a little bit about the the realities of our culture and how that is influencing how we as believers Mm. communicate rather than the other way around. Yeah, I mean, I I have a friend who uh, years ago founded a a rummage sale, a set of uh, of letters that civil uh, somebody who's fighting in the Civil War was writing to their friend, and and these pages, I mean, they were like twenty pages front and back of this eloquently written communication, and it was just about how are you doing? I mean, it was nothing; it wasn't about anything really important. And essentially, what what we're observing in our culture right now is a complete and utter rejection of thoughtful dialogue with. Uh, tweets and Facebook updates and um, uh, essentially pithy uh, cliches. We live cliche to cliche, and we have completely lost uh, the ability to communicate in depth and to communicate well to people, uh, even that we love uh, the closest. I mean, even I've observed just fascinatingly, even after the election, I mean, divorces that are taking place because there's political discourse that's different within a marriage I mean, we just we don't even we just don't even know how to talk with substance anymore. Mm. Um, One of the things that we are subject to is information overload and invitations to speak, whether Mm. that's in print or using our voices without much emphasis on wisdom, discernment, insight. Uh, We're just encouraged to sort of vomit out whatever (laughs) happens to occur to us. How important is the overload of information, which gives us the feeling that we might know more or be wiser than we actually are, impact Mm -hmm. the way we relate to one another? Mm -hmm. Well, I would say I think I'd answer on two two levels. Uh, The first first would be I've observed as a participant on Twitter, um, I've observed that as a pastor and as a Christian leader, when I don't speak up on some social justice issue that's hot today, um, I'm, uh, interestingly enough, considered to be complicit with the problem. And for the first time in history, um, mm. I think silence has been interpreted as injustice. And for the Christian, that's very problematic because the way that we work our stuff out is in the presence of God, uh, that we go to God and we know how to pray and be quiet and silent and that we don't often act, react right away. Sometimes we stop and get in the presence of Jesus. It's very problematic when silence and reflection are considered parts of the problem. Uh, The second thing that I would say is that um, the kind of great quote that I heard years ago, I think it was James Sire or Dallas Willard, somebody who said that uh, we are overwhelmed with information, but simultaneously, we are drowning in information but parched for transformation. Mm. And his point was, we are just, we are overwhelmed with information. It's just not doing anything to actually change our lives. And that, that's, I, I can tell as an older millennial that that's taking place among me and the people that are my age, is we know everything in the world, but we are increasingly people who have no character. Mm. What did God intend when he gave us speech? Maybe we need to, to start there. Uh, Lord, you've given me this tremendous capacity to communicate. What is your uh, what is your intention? What is my purpose in using that gift? Yeah, well, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, God words are God's invention. I mean, God spoke the world into existence. Uh, one of my favorite verses in, in Genesis that God spoke everything and also the stars. John Wesley once said that it was almost as though the, the rest of the universe was an afterthought. And God does this just with his words. I mean, just language is God's creation. Adam and Eve uh, spoke. Uh, and of course, words 
were also the, what were used by, uh, by uh, the serpent to deceive Adam and Eve. So there's, there's a sense in which Genesis speaks about the fact that words have creation, creative power, but destructive power as well. And we find even in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis that God uh, intentionally, while he gives us words, God also disrupts words. We find at the Tower of Babel that it was God who confused the languages. Uh, you know, that could take place today if we had some electrical blip and no longer communicated via Internet. That'd be similar to the story of Babel. All of us would go our other ways. We would not have talked to each other. Um, but at the end of the day, words have, the scriptures say, tremendous power to yeah. give life and simultaneously capacity to destroy. You know, it's interesting, as you described what happened at the Tower of Babel, it's as if that has happened to us. We are speaking the same language. We share, in, in, at least in part, some common experience, and yet we lack understanding, or at least a mm. willingness to attempt to understand one another. Uh, and it's, a, it's an unsavory combination. Lots of information, lots of opportunity to speak, very little um, uh, wisdom in that whole process. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, we're talking about a really important book, I think, at this time in particular, although I suppose uh, studying and, and determining what God intends for us, redeeming how we talk, has always been important. The subtitle of the book, Discover How Communication Fuels Our Growth, Shapes Our Relationships, and Changes Our Lives, and for that matter, the lives of others. We'll continue in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Continuing a conversation with A.J. Svoboda, who has co-authored the book titled Redeeming How We Talk, Discover How Communication Fuels Our Growth, Shapes Our Relationships, and Changes Our Lives. Well, let's, t- let's start sort of at the beginning. Um, we live in a very complicated age, uh, and the world of communication can be overwhelming. How do we begin to center our words and our speech in a way that's honoring to God and is edifying to the people we, uh, we come in contact, whether that's family members, coworkers, neighbors, friends, and so on? Well, I, you know, when I, when I read, um, when I read uh, the New Testament in particular, uh, when I read the book of James, I find this fascinating little, little theme of, of, of thought, and that is that um, that if we if we don't know how to love and talk to people that we can see, then we're not going to know how to be able to talk to a God that we can't. Um, mm. And and I wonder I wonder a, a little bit if there's a as, if there's a bit of a, a reflection or a, a connection between our prayer life and our ability to talk to people. And I I do I have wondered if maybe the best way that we can learn to talk to people is first learning how to listen to God, because if we don't have the capacity to listen to God, it's going to be really hard. For us to be able to practice that with people that we can see within our, in our life. So I want to, in a very weird way, I almost want to sidestep that question by saying um, we need to learn to talk to God first. And if, if we can do that, okay, then we probably can do it with people. If we're not centered in our relationship with Jesus, then it's going to be really hard to be centered in our relationship with people. Mm, that's uh, so true. We live in, a, in an age when communication is uh, highly depersonalized as well. We can get on Facebook or Twitter or wherever we're communicating, and somehow we're a different person because we're not actually looking into the face of someone else. People can be emboldened, say things they would never say uh, if they were in the company of the the people that they're communicating with. Um, What do you say about the the depersonalized aspect of communication that has had an impact on how we relate to one another when we are face-to-face? Yeah, well, I've noticed in my own life uh, I'll be personal with you on the air here. I've noticed in my 15 years of marriage that I get in more arguments 
driving in the car than any other time during during my anywhere else with my wife and i it's not that we argue in fact we argue very little but i've noticed that it's usually when we're driving and of course when you're driving you're not looking at each other um and any sociologist and social scientist would tell you that uh, something like 85% of all communication is body language and facial expressions. And when you remove that aspect from communication, you disembody the way God intended communication to be made. Um, when we can't see each other's faces, when we don't see each other's body language, we almost always assume that something is wrong, which is why sarcasm over emails never works, mm-hmm. because you just can't see the person's face. We argue in the book that ultimately we need to return to kind of a new approach to conversation that includes the body, embodied conversation. And without doing that, we're just going to find ourselves continuously um, misinterpreting and uh, misreading yeah. one another. And it's going to continue to lead to the down, downfall of our communication. One of the things that you write about is the fact that hard conversations are one of the forgotten arts of, he- of a healthy Christian living. And it's critical to open ourselves up to difficult conversations. And there's a lot to talk about that can be difficult these days, but it's an art form that is largely lost, at least if we're going to have healthy, constructive conversations. Talk a little bit about why that's important and how mm. we can engage one another when we're talking about difficult things, which may be, for example, disagreements on, on issues mm. of our day. Well, char- character is not developed uh, in, in, in a vacuum. Character is developed by encountering really difficult things. Um, I, years ago, heard about this uh, phenomenon in the, in the Arizona desert where they, the University of Arizona had built this huge thing called the biosphere. And the biosphere, they spent billions of dollars on this, this huge in, sort of building that was made of glass but was mm-hmm. kind of a, a biodome. And what they found was these trees – uh, were growing in the biodome, and all of a sudden they'd get to a certain point and they would just fall over, and they couldn't figure out why these trees were dying. And they thought, was there something wrong with the soil? With the, what, what was wrong? And it turns out these trees, they would grow up and they would just fall over because there was no wind. They had no root system. Uh, when wind blew through the – wind is what makes a tree strong. You can't have a, str- a strong tree without wind. Ultimately, human beings grow up to be really, really, really weak people because they've never had opposition. They've had, never had difficult things happen. They've never had challenges. I think that those kinds of things, those difficult conversations, are what build our character. That's what makes us stronger people. Um, when, when there is no wind, conversational wind, when there is no conversational difficulty, we just basically shun anybody that's different than ourselves. We need to teach our kids at a very young age how to have hard conversations. And that means having hard, difficult things happen at a very young age. Now, what are some of the patterns or habits uh, that you've adopted in your own life to help you uh, with healthy communication? Well, I would say, number one, uh, when you're eating a meal with somebody uh, that's a human being, to put your phone down and treat the person in front of you like they're made in the image of God. Um, put, put your phone down and do it more because the person in front of you is created by an almighty God who is made to sit in front of you and have a conversation. I'd say second thing would be um, do everything in the world that you can do to replace disembodied conversations, so Facebook, Twitter, text, and, and actually get back into each other's lives. And I would say the third thing, understand that our technological addiction actually affects other people. Um, when I was a kid, I was raised by a dad who's a doctor, a phenomenal doctor. But I remember as a kid, my dad always was on call. And when I was a kid, my favorite thing to do with my dad was to go to Disneyland and go fishing. And it turns out both those things had one thing in common. 
my dad was not on call when we went fishing or went to Disneyland. Mm. Uh, last year, I took my son for the first time to Disneyland, and we were standing in line for Wild Mr. Wild Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, and there was this little kid in front of us who was about six years old pulling on his dad's shirt and saying, Dad, 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 trying to get his attention. And I watched for nearly one and a half, two minutes as this dad ignored his son as he was answering emails on his phone. We do not understand what we are teaching our kids. We are teaching our kids that we're in the room, but we're not really in the room, that we're somewhere else. And if we think that doesn't affect people, we're not paying attention. Now, some of us don't don't have good examples we can look to to guide us in how to communicate. But the second part of your book focuses on the words of God, the mechanics of hearing one another, the wisdom and words, um, what uh, what godly speech is to help help us if we don't see a, a model elsewhere. Help us to to see what what is it that we're aspiring to. What are examples mm. of of where we should go? Give us some examples <laughs> yeah. on on uh, on some of the words of God that will help us. Yeah. Well, actually, I don't know. I don't know if there is a better model, frankly, than Jesus, who was the ultimate conversationalist. Uh, Jesus, we find from reading the Gospels that Jesus is always talking to people that he disagreed with. He is always loving people he disagreed with. Jesus is always encountering people and having conversations with people that were fundamentally different than he was. The very fact, by the way, that of the 12 disciples, Jesus, of course, had 12 disciples that are named. Uh, it's fascinating to me that Jesus took a guy named Matthew, the tax collector, who was by his very name, Matthew, the tax collector. He worked for the Roman government. He was a big government guy. We call him a Democrat. And Jesus also took a guy named Simon the Zealot, who was an anti-government guy, wanted Rome to fall. We call him a libertarian or attack a, a, a Tea Party guy. And Jesus took both of them. And he said, your politics are really cute. Why don't you come and follow me? And he said to both of them that their politics were not the ultimate goal. The goal is to follow Jesus. And what's remarkable is Jesus even took enemies and made them friends. There is no greater conversational hero that we should look to as Christians other than Jesus, who was willing to embrace and love and even critique and speak truth to um, every individual that he came in contact with. There is no greater model than Jesus himself, who was, by the way, the Word of God. You have a chapter about the unity of the church, and you use the term conversational gentrification. Explain what that is and the implications Mm. of it in the church. Yeah, uh, gentrification, at least in a place like Portland where we live, is the process of the urban cores basically being whitewashed, as it were, uh, sanitized to people of color, which is something that's an atrocious uh, thing that's happening in a lot of major cities. Uh, In the book, we talk about the reality that in conversational sense, we gentrify people out of our life that we don't want to have to engage with. Um, And the difficult thing is... uh, the easiest thing, the easiest thing is to, is to sanitize our life of people that are different than ourselves. Um, the only problem is Jesus never lived that way. Uh, Jesus engaged every socioeconomic, every racial category one could imagine. And that does, his conversation did not apply that, imply that he agreed with them. We assume that if we're in conversation with somebody, we have to agree with them. And Jesus didn't do that. That's so important for the church. We do just because we serve and love and converse with somebody has never once implied in the history of Christianity that we agree. Jesus washed the feet of his greatest enemy, Judas, on the night before his death. Jesus washed the feet of his enemy. That should be a model for us for, for welcoming and embracing the person who's fundamentally different than we are. 
What a tremendous example we have. And this is really a a very timely book that I think all generations will benefit by because we have some unique challenges. And if we can model what Christ did in in using his voice um, uh, while he was here with us on earth, I think we will do well to to have a real impact Mm -hmm. on the culture. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Uh, Georgine, thanks for having me, and grace and peace. Have a great rest Thank of your day. Thank you. Thank you very much. Again, A.J. Svoboda, along with his um, uh, co-author, um, Ken Weitzma. The book is titled Redeeming How We Talk, Discover How Communication Fuels Our Growth, Shapes Our Relationships, and Changes Our Lives. The book is published by Moody. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blind is producing today's program, Clark Hilton Engineering, and Dan Rice, he's given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. I want to remind you that if you are looking to do something uh, to minister in our community, Miracle Miles is continuing. KPDQ is joining Pestlock and Live Love Northwest for Miracle Miles. Two large trucks, one has arrived, the other on its way uh, to Portland from the East Coast. Uh, we'll be distributing items that are needed in our community. Donations will be distributed to our local foster families, to the homeless, veterans, survivors of sex trafficking, and more. To help bring hope to our community, you can sponsor one mile or as many miles as you can. You can learn more at Miracle about Miracle Miles rather at kpdq.com. A great chance to, uh, to do something constructive during this season. Well, we are experiencing a woke culture and woke chaos and naked power. I appreciated that Ben Shapiro writing on, and others writing on the Marxist roots of much of what we're seeing. You know, there was a moment following the death of George Floyd where there was absolute agreement, with some rare exceptions, uh, absolute unity on the unfairness of the, uh, the death of George Floyd. It was a moment that could have produced a constructive response to uh, that event, but that moment, mo- rather moment, has since dissipated, given the confusing expression of protest and um, the demonstration that we've seen since. It's been weeks now, uh, and I thought it would be uh, instructive somewhat if we talked about the roots behind some of what we're seeing and why uh, this confusion um, has reared its, I would consider, ugly head. With the death of George Floyd, this was a heinous atrocity virtually every American decries. Unity should have prevailed, and as I mentioned for a moment, it did, at least to the point that this was not a capital crime, he was not resisting arrest, it should not have resulted in his death. Well, Americans hate police brutality, Americans care about black lives, Americans despise looting and rioting, Americans want to protect citizens but preserve the ability of police to stop crime and to do so in a way that's fair to everyone. But instead, the country seems to be falling apart. That's because of the utterly chaotic political and media response to the George Floyd tragedy. And the response, by the way, is contrary to what that family said they wanted as an expression of a dissent in the wake of his death. A response that demands agreement, but most of all requires compliance. You must kneel is what we got instead. You must kneel because you cannot understand. You simply cannot. And if you have to ask for a definition of system, um, systemic privilege, uh, we are told, it's because your white privilege has blind you to reality. If you point out that not all inequality is inequity, you're told it's because your latent racism is leaching into your worldview. If you defend America's history, philosophy, or culture, or God forbid her flag, you must apologize. And if Drew Brees is uh, any indicator, your wife must apologize as well, and your second cousin 
once removed. Now, you may not understand what's being demanded of you. You may see the wave of conflicting messages emanating from the press and wonder just what you're supposed to do. But the chaos is the point. You're supposed to be confused. Confusion is a political weapon. Clarity is, in these circumstances, a shield. If our media and political class can prevent clarity, they can prevent unity. If they can obscure, they can demand acquiescence. And that's the goal at this point by many. Thus, we hear messages that are obviously in direct conflict with one another. And we are told our inability to square those messages means that we must listen to the woke priesthood that can untangle the Gordian knots. Thus, we hear that silence is violence, that being non-racist simply isn't enough, and you must actively fight racism. Uh, We also hear that speech is violence, that if we oppose policies the political left supports, your words are a form of violence, and you must be silenced. The only safe path, therefore, is parroting the message of those initiated to the religion of wokeness, and even those voices conflict with one another from time to time. Thus, we hear that individuals ought not... Uh, be held responsible for the sins of those in their racial group. And that's why it's so wrong for police to engage in profiling. But we also hear that white Americans bear full responsibility for the sins of both modern racists and historic racists and ought to atone on behalf of their race and their country. And if we we refuse, you must be considered a racist. Thus, we hear that police are the greatest threat to black Americans, and that's why they must be defunded. But we also hear that police... uh, Absence, a product of racism, created the conditions that originally led to higher crime rates in black communities. We can, therefore, blame the police for crime, whether they're present or absent in minority communities. Thus, we hear that the rioting and looting were exaggerated by the media or that they were largely the product of white Antifa members. But we also hear that rioting and looting are the justified outgrowth of centuries of black rage. You cannot, therefore, oppose rioting and looting too strenuously, lest you be labeled a racist. Thus, we hear that COVID-19 is so extraordinarily dangerous that anti-lockdown protesters were endangering the lives of other Americans. In fact, they were racist since COVID-19 was disproportionately affected Uh, affecting minority communities. But we also hear that protesting racism is so extraordinarily important that we can freely ignore all restrictions surrounding COVID-19 and indeed that we have an obligation to do so. Thus, we hear that journalists ought to be treated with the utmost respect because they are doing a difficult job in pursuing facts and the truth. And that harsh words uh, spoken about journalists reflect underlying unease about freedom of the press. But we Uh, We also hear that journalists are actually activists and thus have a duty not to be objective. Op-ed editors should be fired for the sin of greenlighting pieces opposing the woke staffers. In the end, our republic runs only so long as we're able to hold some semblance of logical conversation with one another, but the republic isn't running. Instead, we're battered with logically incoherent nonsense, a variety of messages that carry only one consistent bottom line, shut up, believe, repeat. Well, the chaos of the moment isn't a bug, it's a feature. And the more confused we are, the less we can possibly hold together, despite the fact that nearly all Americans agree on the most important issues. Woke chaos and naked power. This is where we find ourselves, and it's not just a matter of what happened, it's in part by design. Robin Smith, writing on uh, uh, racial reconciliation, points out that truth matters in the midst of all of this if... We can agree that truth exists, not just my truth or your truth, as it's commonly referred to these days, but the truth. Uh, Robin uh, writes that last week, a prominent activist declared that she and her colleague 
are trained organizers. In fact, she said we are trained Marxists. We are super versed in ideological theories. In Marxism, capitalism is framed to be an exploitive, oppressive societal problem. A communist economy, the goal of Marxism, emphasizes cooperative ownership of property with no private property rights or personal wealth. The popular slogan of Karl Marx sums it up, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. But that doesn't fully reflect the fact that the German economist, along with his comrade, uh, Frederick Engels, co-authored the Communist Manifesto, taught that socialism was the necessary first step to communism where all divisions of class would be erased. Well, Patrice Cullors, one of the two co-founders of Black Lives Matter, was the one who made these Marxist statements of her beliefs. The other founder, Alicia Garza, in a 2018 feature on blackpast.org, identified herself as a queer social justice activist and a Marxist. Thinking they are aiding racial and social justice, uh, corporate giants and political left, they're now carelessly funding these trained Marxists who lead 16 chapters of Black Lives Matter in the U.S. and in Canada in the disruption of commerce and the destruction of small and large businesses. No one is defending racism or the death of innocent black men, but Black Lives Matter and Antifa have hijacked the emotions stirred by select uh, recent events to promote the very behaviors and practices that keep minorities trapped in government dependency. Andrew Clavin of the Daily Wire wrote, in an in, uh, analysis of the Black Lives Matter movement, that racial matrix is an entirely false narrative in which just those very prescriptions that will make black lives worse provide whites a sense of virtue while continuing the Democrat destruction of actual black lives. Neither BLM tactics of anger baiting nor the virtue signaling of guilty whites will help. We should instead be identifying problems, working with leaders for solutions and moving the underprivileged toward independence. But again, that is not broadly the goal for many. And my fear is that many others who have taken up the righteous cause of justice are, are joining a movement they have little understanding of that has far greater implications and far reach uh, than they ever imagined. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the Marxist roots of the Black Lives Matter movements, which doesn't mean that every member of the movement is a Marxist, but this is where the core comes from and why some of what we're seeing expressed as outrage has taken the form of Marxist outrage. Well, the organizers of the movement have uh, Marxist devotion to a new world order destroying America's economy, its economic freedom, and even more contentably, the freedom of individual Americans. Its own website uses the word comrades to describe a new order where we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another. Now, it sounds like a great idea that we collectively care for one another, but what precedes that is the um, to disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family. Well, it's not just Western prescribed. That, that has been the structure from the very beginning. Well, the movement makes it clear that encouraging self-reliance and freedom from government dependency is not at all a priority. These radicals have, an, have no belief that an intact family, personal property, personal wealth, achievement are healthy rights, and because of this, they don't promote a sense of personal accomplishment or greater attainment in the next generation. One government housing project, or government housing projects rather, are in many cases now full of third and fourth generation residents, and the aspiration isn't to move from there to something else. 
It's uh, to broaden government dependence. Now, many blacks are tired of the leftist political agenda of the movement because it will only lead to harm for their community. A Niger in, uh, Innis, who recently exploded, said, I'll be, and he uses profanity, if you use the suffering and misery of black Americans and our legacy to the United States of America as your shield and use us as cannon fodder when your agenda really ha- does not have anything to do, he's using different words, with saving black lives. Leo Terrell, racial activist and lawyer, insisted that a criminal element has taken over the protest movement that began with the death of George Floyd. Well, ultimately, what will succeed in healing the racial divide is not the Marxist lies being peddled. It's the authentic truth that withstands subjective opinion and bias, healthy conversations that are honest and sometimes very difficult. Walter Williams, who is himself an African-American economist, uh, economic professor, rather, writes this, the true plight of black Americans. And this, again, offers some perspective. He says that while it might not be popular to say in the wake of the recent social disorder, the true plight of black people has little or nothing to do with the police and what has been called systematic racism. Instead, we need to look at the responsibilities of those running our big cities. Some of the most dangerous big cities are St. Louis, Detroit, Baltimore, Oakland, Chicago, Memphis, Atlanta, Birmingham, Newark, Buffalo, and Philadelphia. The most common characteristic of these cities is that for decades, all of them have been run by liberal Democrats. Some cities, such as Detroit, Buffalo, Newark, and Philadelphia, haven't elected a Republican mayor for more than a half century. On top of this, in many of these cities, blacks are mayors. Often they dominate city councils, and they are chiefs of police and superintendents of schools. In 1965, there were no blacks in the U.S. Senate, nor were there any black governors, and only six members of the House of Representatives were black. As of 2019, there are far greater representations in some areas. 52 House members are black. Nine black Americans have served in the Senate, including Edward Brooke of Massachusetts, Carol Mosley Brown and Barack Obama of Illinois, Tom Scott of South Carolina, Cory Booker of New Jersey, and Kamala Harris of California. In recent times, there have been three black states governors. The bottom line is that today, black Americans have significant political power at all levels of government. Yet, what has that that meant for the large segment of the black population? Democratic-controlled cities have the poorest quality public education despite their large and growing school budgets. Consider Baltimore, Maryland. In 2016, in 13 of Baltimore's 39 high schools, not a single student scored proficient on the state's math exam. In six other high schools, only 1% tested proficient in math. Only 15% of Baltimore students passed the state's English test. That same year in Philadelphia, only 19% of 8th graders scored proficient in math. 16% were proficient in reading. In Detroit, only 4% of these 8th graders, of its 8th graders, scored proficient in math, and 7% were proficient in reading. It's the same story of academic disaster in other cities run by Democrats. Violent crime and poor education is not the only problem for Democratic-controlled cities. Because of high crime, poor schools, and a less pleasant environment, cities are losing their economic base and their most productive people in droves. When World War II ended, the population of Washington, D.C. was about 800,000. Today, it's about 700,000. In 1950, Baltimore's population was 950,000. Today, it's around 590,000. Detroit's 1950 population was close to 1.85 million. Today, it's down to 673,000. The population of Camden, New Jersey in 1950 was nearly 125,000. Today, it's fallen to 74,000. St. Louis, 1950, the population 856,000. Today, 294. 
A similar story of population decline can be found in most of our formerly large and prosperous cities. In some cities, the population decline since 1950 is well over 50 percent, and that includes Detroit, St. Louis, Cleveland, and Pittsburgh. Academic liberals, civil rights advocates, and others blame the exodus on racism, white flight to the suburbs to avoid blacks. But blacks have been fleeing some cities at higher rates than whites. The five cities whose suburbs have the fastest growing black populations are Miami, Dallas, Washington, Houston, and Atlanta. It turns out that blacks, like whites, want better and safer schools for their kids and don't like to be mugged or have their uh, property vandalized. And like white people, if they have uh, means, black people cannot wait to leave troubled cities. White liberals and black politicians focus most of their attention on what the police do. But how relevant is that to the overall tragedy? According to a um, a statistic this year, 172 whites and 88 blacks have died at the hands of police. To put police shooting in a bit of perspective, in Chicago alone in 2020, there were 1,260 shootings, 256 homicides, with blacks being the primary victims. That comes to one shooting victim every three hours and one homicide victim every 15 hours. Three people in Chicago have been killed by police. If one is truly concerned about black deaths, shooting by police should figure way down on the list, should be on the list. Uh, but it's uh, not an excuse for bad behavior by some police officers, but it should all be taken into account if the core issues uh, are going to be ultimately addressed. Well, if you wonder where today's cancel culture comes from, it comes from college campuses. It's fueled by young people and abated by um, older generation that's well, doesn't have the courage to say no. Now, this is how the slide toward totalitarianism begins. Silencing the opposition is essential to creating legitimacy for despots like Vladimir Putin or Kim Jong-un. If political opponents have no voice, people will assume they don't exist. We're not there yet, but that's the direction we seem to be heading. Over the past several decades, our schools have become incubators for the progressive left. Liberal professors have taught millennials and younger generations that our countries were founded on a lie and that our free enterprise system is rigged just as damaging They've ignored the great achievements of the nation, black and white and other minorities as well. Achievements like the liberation of Europe from the Nazis that we used to celebrate. Well, this is not new, but now another more alarming trend has emerged. More destructive than the liberal curriculums of our schools have been the growing intolerance on campuses and the tendency to put the kids in charge. As Robert Zimmer, the president of the University of Chicago, wrote in 2016, Invited speakers are disinvited because a segment of the university community deemed them offensive. Demands are made to eliminate readings that might make some students uncomfortable. Individuals are forced to apologize for expressing views that conflict with prevailing perceptions. Most disturbing, as he points out, in my cases, uh, these efforts have been supported by university administrators. A poll in 2018 showed that a majority of students at 56 percent supported freedom of speech, but shockingly also said that promoting a diverse and inclusive society was more important than the First Amendment. In other words, suppressing speech was okay too. Not that long ago, schools acted in loco parentis for kids living in dorms on the theory that young people are not yet mature enough to make reliably good decisions. Have kids changed, become smarter or more sensible? Judging from the crowds of youngsters flaunting COVID-19 rules recently over spring break, it would appear that, no, they are still capable of making stupid and dangerous decisions. Why then, one might ask, do we allow them such power? Why take them so seriously? Now, we'll continue to take a look at that as we're looking at the Marxist roots of uh, the uh, movement that we're seeing now in our culture. 
where it uh, began, where it's headed, and whether or not it succeeds, I suppose, depends on dissenters who stand up and say, enough. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm talking about the roots of the unrest that we're currently witnessing, the Marxist uh, origin of some of the leadership in these movements and where uh, those who are uh, leading hope it will take us. One of the things I left with in the last segment was why young people are given um, uh, such power on college campuses and beyond and while they're taken, why they're taken uh, so seriously. Well, the answer, the older generation, they're scared to challenge them. Their uh, facility with technology, social media makes us think that they're smarter than we are, but they're not. Uh, information is not the same as wisdom, and many desperately need wisdom. College administrators and trustees have cravenly accommodated even the most outrageous demands for fear of losing control or, on occasion, their jobs. College administrators and uh, trustees are fearful. Meanwhile, alumni of elite schools, the prestigious trendsetters who uh, could be steadying uh, influence, they could be, are frightened to take on their um, alma maters worry that they might run or rather ruin their kids' chances of acceptance or be ostracized by their peers. When two Yale professors were uh, with impeccable liberal credentials are forced to step down as heads of a residential college because they doubt that a culturally insensitive Halloween costume is a danger to students, schools everywhere take note. When Harvard denotes, um, demotes a first black faculty dean because students complain that his role as defense lawyer for Harvey Weinstein is a trauma-inducing event, a message is sent. Commentators deride today's students as snowflakes because they appear so fragile. Young people demand safe spaces and trigger warnings to alert them that an incoming opinion may jar their preconceptions and sensibilities. But these are the same students who adore gore uh, video games and profanity-laced music. They're the same students who hurl obscenities and insults at professors who cross them. They're not fragile. They are intolerant. That's the proper word. In recent years, these students have uh, moved out into the world carrying their intolerance with them. They now occupy newsrooms and social media firms. They are the ones who drove uh, respected editor James Bennett from the New York Times it is people like 30-year-old former Gawker writer Katie Weaver who tweeted that running Senator Tom Cotton's ep, uh, op-ed about uh, quelling riots uh, puts blacks at New York Times staff in danger. Writing his opinion about what should happen to violent protesters puts the staff in danger. Uh, should we assume they are violent protesters? A refrain repeated by several of her woke peers. The Times Bennett is not uh, the only high-profile journalist recently mugged by the younger generation, the top editor at the Philadelphia Inquirer. Stan Wachinski uh, was tossed out, too, because he published an article by the paper's um, architecture critic entitled Buildings Matter, Too. Well, the staff was outraged with 44 journalists of color, most of them young, sending a letter to the leadership proclaiming that uh, they were disgusted with the paper. The most chilling line in that letter read, we're tired of being told to show both sides of issues. There are no two sides. Now, think about that. These are trained professional journalists. We are tired of being told to show both sides of issues. There are no two sides of. <laughs> Ignore the appalling sentence structure and consider the even more appalling message. The author rejects balanced reporting, the foundation of journalism. This is how young people think. There is only one right view and any other should be suppressed. Well, this isn't healthy in the coddling of the American mind, how good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure. 
Greg uh, Lukianoff, he suggests that protecting youngsters from opposing views actually makes them more fragile, not less. And he's correct. It also perpetuates their ignorance. We need alumni to speak up, and if they disagree with their alma mater's policy, withhold the funding and explain why. We need more university presidents standing their ground and telling students the truth rather than cowering in fear. Peter uh, Salovey, the president of Yale, said to the incoming class of 2020, In times of great stress, false narratives may dominate the public mind and public discourse, inflaming negative emotions and fanning discord. As a result, we sometimes find that anger, fear, or disgust can blind us to the complexity to the complexity uh, of the world and the responsibility to seek deeper understandings of important issues. That's where we are today. The question is, where is he? Parts of the movement started by widespread revulsion at the murder of George Floyd. It was justified. It was righteous indignation. But that has since metastasized into a power grab by hard leftists. Their aim goes beyond dismantling the police, likely to have an early sell-by date, but targets the suppression of such tenets of liberalism as speech and property rights. Conservatives who want to conserve the republic as uh, as it is, rather, need to, well, gird their loins for battle. Uh, For a brief ephemeral moment, the country came together in condemnation of Floyd's death and police custody in Minneapolis. But a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. So those who want to change America, root and branch, because they see it as an experiment not worth preserving, sensed an opportunity for their agenda. Have no illusion, they are seizing this moment. And the question is, will others rise to the occasion in opposition? These protesters have begun to create a new government, one that aims to rework society, wrote Sean Collins in Vox back in uh, uh, early June. The protests are a reminder, he went on, that there is something very wrong with American society, all of it, everything, everywhere, and that people across the nation want something new. You should believe people when they are this direct. Yes, years of being told by their teachers and professors that America was a hideous creature, an indoctrination that kicked into high gear with the pseudo-historian Howard Zinn, we talked about that book some months ago, and followed by his many copycats, including the current 1619 curriculum by the New York Times, has not stayed behind ivied walls or state campuses. It is bled out into the broader society. They were never meant to stay within those campuses. The leftist ideologues indoctrinated youth um, because they knew that they would be compliant adults. Think Napoleon's kidnapping of the puppies at the start of the animal farm and then unexpectedly later on in the book unleashing them on a uh, snowy once they were grown up. Maybe you don't recognize the reference. You can look it up. Anyway, George Orwell, the author of Animal Farm, also wrote 98.4 in which he said, I should say 1984, in which he said the revolution will be complete when the language is perfect. Well, Orwell was warning us that this totalitarian attempt to control the meaning of words, but the 1960s radical organizer Saul Alinsky embraced this tactic to win the cultural battles. You must take control of the language, he said. That's why we should not be surprised that the first victories of the new power grab have come in newsrooms. Two editors of large city newspapers, as I mentioned, Philadelphia, New York Times, lost. Katie Kingsbury, the new acting op-ed editor of the Times, told staff, anyone who sees any piece on opinion journalism, this is opinion journalism, headlines, social posts, photos, you name it, that gives you the slightest pause, please call or text me immediately. Writing in the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, a paper where the uh, news side still isn't allowed to dictate uh, terms of surrender to the editorial side, Dan Henniger said this, 
It is impossible not to recognize the irony of these events. The silencers aren't campus protesters, but professional journalists, a class of American workers who for nearly 250 years have had a constitutionally protected and court-enforced ability to say just about anything they want. This renunciation of journalistic objectivity has been openly embraced by reporters, editors, and deans of journalism schools. Nicole Hannah-Jones, creator of the Times' mendacious 1619 project, another uh, Zinian-styled effort uh, meant to make Americans dislike the founding, went on NPR and denounced the very possibility of objectivity. All journalism is activism, she proclaimed. Now, again, think about that for a moment. All journalism is activism. You are not obligated to, uh, to share the truth, the facts. It is activism. So you shape them to meet your narrative. Hannah Jones, incidentally, also has been leading the crusade against property rights, saying in an interview that destroying property, which can be replaced, is not violence. Uh, she's not alone. That vile view is now what is acceptable at New York Times and throughout American journalism. The Times is Hannah Jones' paper now. Well, one of the aims of the language power grab is to make it impossible for conservatives to openly discuss their policy remedies to the ills besetting society, such as emphasizing civic equality, equal protection under the law, economic growth, education equality through choice, and so on. Take, for example, having the public and private schools teach what is known as success sequence. A success sequence, the idea that if someone graduates high school, gets a job, marries and then has kids, they're highly unlikely to become poor. But to say this now falls under the heading of blaming the victim, a form of racism, according to the pyramid of white supremacy taught to our children. Now, many conservatives and even non-conservatives, such as law professor John Turley, are are coming around to the view that this is a moment not unlike those we saw in the French Revolution, the French terror of 1793-94, or the Maoist Cultural Revolution of 1966 through 1976. The atmosphere is strikingly similar for those familiar with the history and specifically the course of the French Revolution. Turley writes, welcome to the French Revolution 2.0. Perhaps because um, the Maoist... Well, I won't even get into that. But New Orleans Saints quarterback Drew Brees um, had to offer an abject apology complete with I statements such as I am an ally for having uh, the temerity to say that he would not stand for disrespecting old glory. Cotton said on the floor of the Senate this week that the cancel culture, whether it's Maoists or Jacobin forms, ultimately is animated by a single idea that America at its core is fundamentally, irredeemably wicked. Either way, conservatives better be prepared for the worst. The writer Rod Dreher warns, we are going to come out of this long, hot, miserable summer with the progressive ruling class with much more confidence in its own righteousness and much more willingness to clamp down on dissent from its social justice gospel. We have to get ready for it. We have no time to lose. We just simply do not. And again, the question is, are those who embrace the core principles, whether or not we have achieved them um, perfectly, those who embrace the core principles of this constitutional republic are willing to stand against the onslaught. And I'm not altogether confident that we are prepared to do just that. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just wanted to mention a couple of things that might help us look beyond what's happening in our own backyard to what's happening in the rest of the world. Certainly, there's a lot of 
uh, social strife here, but I wanted to remind those of us who care about the persecuted church that in Nigeria there is something approaching a genocide there, and I, the word may actually apply today. Um, there's an area of the world where innocent blacks are truly being murdered in horrific numbers, of course, by other blacks, but in the context of what we've been talking about, I thought I'd mention it. That would be in Africa's largest nation, Nigeria, where more than 50,000 African men, women, and children, predominantly Christian, have been murdered over the last decade, and the world has largely ignored the genocide. We're working on a um, interview that has been tracking that to help us better understand what's happening to our brothers and sisters there. But as one writer describes the horror, heavily armed jihadists suddenly appear in the dead of night. They attack house after house, breaking down doors, shouting, Aloha Akbar. Uh, they shoot the elderly, the able-bodied men. They rape, they mutilate, they murder women. They kidnap young boys and girls. They torch houses, schools, and churches. And this has uh, gone on for some time. According to the International Committee of Ni- on Nigeria, it's a research group that details terrorism in the country. Boko Haram has killed nearly 35,000 Nigerians from 2015 to 2020 alone and displaced more than 2 million Africans from their homes. Boko Haram, the informal name of the Islamic State in West Africa, they gained international notoriety back in 2014 when their jihadi kidnapping of 276 schoolgirls from the Nigerian town of Chaibok. Somehow the terrorists were able to withstand the devastating Twitter campaign, Bring Back Our Daughters, waged by the former first lady and Hollywood celebrities, and the girls remained captive, with many forced to marry the terrorists and bear their children. Within a few months, the girls were uh, all but forgotten. Just two weeks ago, Boko Haram terrorists launched a barbarous attack on the village of uh, Faduma Kolamdi in northeastern Nigeria. The attackers rounded up the villagers, initially claiming to be Islamic teachers and asking the villagers to submit their weapons. Once the weapons were collected, the jihadis opened fire, killing uh, 81 people. There was video that they posted immediately following of those deaths. A spokesperson from the Nigerian military promised an investigation, but considering that these attacks have been occurring for more than a decade, killing tens of thousands, the promises are of little comfort to the persecuted. Meanwhile, between 2010 and 2020, Fulani jihadists murdered approximately 17,000 Africans. Uh, The Fulanis are the world's largest nomadic group comprised of roughly 20 million people covering Nigeria, Mali, and other parts of West Africa. I won't go on, but... um, This is what's happening right now. So far, the uh, desperate pleas of these persecuted black Christians have largely fallen on deaf ears globally. Last year, President Trump met with Nigerian President uh, Buhari during a press conference. The president stated, we've uh, had very serious problems with the Christians who have been murdered, killed in Nigeria. Uh, We can't allow that to happen. Thus far, however, the problem has only gotten worse, perhaps because uh, the president himself is a member of the Fulani tribe. Hmm. Well, even in the midst of the COVID-19 global pandemic, more Nigerian Christians are murdered by these terrorists than die from the virus. In fact, with Boko Haram and Fulani terrorists ravaging the country, the lockdown orders are making Christians even more vulnerable. So as you're praying for the persecuted church, remember our brothers and sisters there. Meanwhile, Christians in Muslim-majority Iran are risking arrest to provide food and humanitarian aid to their neighbors struggling without jobs during the coronavirus pandemic, according to the head of one of the world's most prominent Christian persecution watchdogs. David Curry of Open Doors, he's the CEO, is the organization that monitors persecution in 60 countries, told the Christian Post that underground churches in Iran have surfaced amid COVID-19 crisis, 
to answer Jesus' call to love their neighbor. Now, this is extraordinary. It just began with um, uh, people spending their, their own time and their own money to make sure neighbors have the care and support they need because of lost incomes and the COVID-19 pandemic fallout. Um, CEO Curry says, adding that efforts have become more organized over time as local church networks have gotten involved. The church serves as a rally point and centers of care and compassion for Muslim communities that they are living in. For security reasons, Curry could not go into detail about how many churches were involved in distributing aid and how the aid was distributed, how it all worked. But he said that churches, which are already under tremendous societal pressure, are taking extra risk by trying to organize um, uh, people to help them who are struggling. Well, the remarkable thing about the Iranian church is their ability to mobilize online networks into offline outreach in this highly restrictive, risk-laden environment. Iran is ranked by Open Doors USA as the ninth worst country in the world when it comes to Christian persecution. The society is governed by Islamist law and churches are banned from holding services in the nation's most common language, Farsi. People caught attending underground house churches face arrest, and many are arrested every year. But in order to serve their neighbors, many, according to um, Open Doors, Mr. Curry, many have emerged to serve and minister to their neighbors. Curry stated that the church has always been strong in the underground among supporting each other. This is something different because they're having to come above ground, so to speak. They're starting in their pockets and their communities and neighbors, people that... um, uh, who they know are hungry and need hygiene kits and things like that, uh, but it has gotten above ground, and so this is uh, an outreach that they are willing to to make for the sake of their neighbors who are suffering. I hope we're spending time on our knees in prayer for all that's going on in the world and remembering who's on the throne. I want to thank James Blinn for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.